This is a talk by Joel, titled Meditation 3, Liberating Thoughts, Desires, and Aversions, recorded at the 2003 Fall Retreat at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. So, a quick review of fundamental principles here for this morning. It's very important to remember that the delusion of self is something that the imagination creates and has to sustain. It's an ongoing recreation in every moment. It's not something that just sits there like a lump of clay. And the great uh, metaphor for this is if you have a sparkler on the 4th of July and you, you know, move it around in a circle at night and you do it steadily and properly, it gives this impression that there's this ring of fire just hanging in the air. And it looks like almost you could reach out, you know, you could take it home and hang it on your wall. But it's an illusion. It's not there. There is no ring of fire, and it's all being created by this activity. If the activity stops, the ring disappears. And it's very much like the delusion of self. It's an activity. It's a verb. It's not a noun. And it begins at a very primitive level of imagination. It's more or less the level of a dream. It's just like we imagine a dream and we reify the dream and we don't know we're doing it. It's not something we are, in that sense, consciously doing or willfully doing. It's just happening. That's why we can't just decide to stop doing it. That's the most fundamental level this happens at. But then there are levels and levels on top of that. And the next sort of intermediary level, we might say, is that level of running commentary that goes through your mind all day long that is not really formal thought the way we think of it, but just the yakety-yak that's telling you what the world is and how you should respond to it, whether you're going to like it or not, and, and it goes off on tangents and this and that, and, you know, uh, it's completely undirected and, again, uncontrolled. I mean, you can actually stop it for a moment if you pay attention, but if you let it go, it just runs. And it keeps recreating this boundary, not only this boundary, but it keeps recreating you in the story of I. And then on top of that, we have the formal thought. When we really sit down, you know, you've, you've just bought a house, you're going to plan, what color do I want to paint the house? Uh, you spend days going through catalogs and getting chips and holding it up. And, you know, this is all that formal sort of planning that goes on, which we normally think of as thought. It includes theories we have about ourselves, you know, why we are the way we are because our inner child is locked up or we're codependent or, you know, whatever <laughs> kinds of things. And it also includes the theories we have about the universe, you know, like what are the stars made of and things like that, the kind of thought that you get inculcated with when you get an education. So anyway, I'm just trying to give you a picture here of all the levels that is encompassed when mystics talk about thought. It's not just the formal thought, it's all of that. And so it includes imagination, memories, all that kind of mental activity. This is what captivates our attention. And it captivates our attention on all these levels. So, in order for attention to return to its source, it has to be completely freed from all thought, all imagination. If only for one instant. But it does have to be completely free. Realization takes place in this moment between thought. All thought has to come to a stop for just an instant. It's not good enough to slow down the 
the sparkler. That helps. You start to see that this is an illusion, but attention is still caught by that. It's when the sparkler is just extinguished completely from one instant. There is nothing there. Then it's a possibility to have it obvious that this is a total illusion. And what is there is just the space in which the illusion appeared. Then when the illusion starts up again, if it's going to be a full-blown gnosis, you'll recognize the magician's trick. It's just a trick. But I want to stick with this point. Attention has to be totally freed from all imagination. Meister Eckhart says, the smallest image hides all of God. The smallest image in your mind hides all of God. And what he means is if attention is on any little image, you're missing God. Uh, here's what the Upanishads say. He comes to the thought of those who know him beyond thought, not to those who imagine he can be attained by thought. He is unknown to the learned and known to the simple. He is known in the ecstasy of an awakening which opens the door of life eternal. You'll find this pops up a lot. He's known to the simple, uh, not the learned, you know, just the wisdom of the fool rather than the worldly wisdom and so forth. And it doesn't mean that you're necessarily lost just because you have some learning. We can make ourselves simple. We don't have to even get rid of our learning, but we just have to see our learning for what it is and in its place and not be so fascinated by it and stuck on it. It's an advantage in some sense to be smart and have learning, you usually then pick up the instructions quickly and you understand the principles of things quickly, but then the learned and the smart and the clever mind always thinks it understands at that level and won't go any deeper. And even if you say to it, you know, no, no, this is about unknowing. Oh, yes, I understand that. <laughs> you know? And it's very hard for it to grasp that, 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 no, this is not it. It always will incorporate that into its knowledge, what it knows. Here's Zen Master Dogen. It is worth noticing that what you think one way or another is not a help for realization. Realization does not depend on thoughts, but comes forth from beyond them. Realization is helped only by the power of realization itself. This is why I say it. it doesn't matter what you think. And it's worth noticing because in our practice, on our path, you know, the poor donkey mind is always trying to figure this out. And then it judges, well, is this right? Do I got it now? No, I'm not sure that's right. I better go check with the teacher. Is this right or not? It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. Forget it. Whether you're right or wrong about all this, it's just totally irrelevant to realization. So, how do we free our attention from thought? All thought. That's what we're going to work on today. And we want to begin by recognizing that thought is just thought. A lot of you have done this exercise before, but it's extremely important. That whatever thought arises, it's like a character in a movie. However strong it is, however forceful, however vivid, however compelling, it never will jump off that screen and be a character walking around in life. It's always going to remain on the screen as a character in a movie. And whatever thoughts you are thinking, whether you think it's true or you think it's false or you, it's a doubtful thought or this kind of thought or that kind of thought, is thought. 
The nature of it is thought. An analogy I like to use for this, it's like walking through an art gallery. You walk through this gallery and there are all different kinds of paintings there in different styles. There's some, you know, very realistic paintings. There's some very abstract paintings. They're impressionist paintings. They're colorful paintings. They're dark gray paintings. Some of the paintings you like, some of the paintings you don't like. Some you find really compelling surrealist paintings. Some you go, Ugh. you know, what? But they're all paintings. They're all paint on canvas hanging on the wall. And so it's an interesting uh, experiment to do actually in life is to walk through an art gallery first time around the way you normally would and react, respond to all the paintings and then go back and now walk through the art gallery and see if you can't see that they are just all paintings. So this is what we want to do right now. We're going to do a little meditation. Try to see that all thought is thought. That regardless of its content, we are totally going to ignore its content. We're just going to recognize, oh, that is a thought. That is a thought as opposed to any phenomenon in the sensory fields, like a sound or a touch or whatever. We're isolating the mental field and we're saying, well, all this stuff has this one characteristic. It's all thought. And none of those thoughts ever become a sensual phenomenon. So, we're going to use choiceless awareness. So, as always, begin with your meditation object, your breath or your mantra. Stabilize the mind. Spend a few minutes getting the mind as stable as possible, a little clarity. Then allow attention to start expanding through the various sense fields, out into the sensation field. You start feeling the sensations, then you incorporate the sounds arise in the sound field, and then you let attention expand out into the sight field. You're just noticing there's sight phenomena there, smells or tastes float through, you notice that. Then we come to the thought field. And then you want to keep your attention in the thought field. So it's not quite spread out, it's in a totally expanded choiceless awareness in all the fields, but it is not focusing on one thought or another in the thought field. There's still choiceless awareness in terms of whatever thought wants to come up, that's great. It just comes up. And you recognize it as thought. And if in the beginning, if it's helpful to label this thought, oh, thought, by all means do so. After a while, you might experiment with it. See if you can just recognize it instantaneously as thought and not have to have that intermediary process. The only distraction here is if the thoughts suck you up into the screen, then you want to cut that off and go back to watching them individually. I'm going to periodically <clears throat> uh, suggest thoughts to you so that something vivid and clear comes and cuts through that murkiness, and then you can think of it, and then you can just see, oh, that's just thought. It's just part of the gallery. It's another painting hanging in the gallery. Okay? Everybody's clear on what we are doing? Good. So, let us begin.
call to mind the date of your birth. Remember what you ate for breakfast this morning. What is 12 plus 13? Is George G. Bush a worse or better president than his father? Generate the thought, I am an American. Generate the thought, I am not an American. Today is Wednesday, it's 10.15. What do you expect to be doing a week from now?
What is the name of this retreat center? Repeat the name again and notice that it is impermanent. Repeat the name once more and notice that it, as the Buddhists say, self-liberates. It just dissolves on its own. Now I'm going to ask you to generate a thought, but before I ask, note now the absence of that thought. There is no trace of it. How old are you? I'm going to ask the question again, and this time I want you to let your mind answer it, but then let the answer self-liberate. How old are you? So, what was your experience with our little experiment? Is it really empty? Hmm? 
Remember, this is the point. It doesn't matter whether it's true or false. The content is irrelevant. I'm just worried about my memory. <laughs> <laughs> now look what happened, you see. The assignment was to look at the thought, just see it as thought, but what it sparked in you. I'm worried about your memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, any, in any case, it sparked a little story, didn't it? A little story about, gee, what's the matter with him? That's not true. I must, he must be losing his mind. <laughs> George G. Bush. Ah, yes, we got that one too. Very good. And what did it? Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I realized that was a trick question, and I thought, oh, he's being tricky. And then when he said Wednesday, I didn't know whether to believe it or not. I wasn't sure. Right, right. Okay, but look at this is wonderful because look how the mind jumps in, and that was not the instruction for the meditation, right? The meditation is just whatever thought was there. It's like walking through a gallery. Specifically, I said it doesn't matter whether it's true or not. But the mind still has to get in there and judge and decide and try to figure this out. So this isn't a criticism of you personally. I'm talking about this conditioned thinking mind. This is what the poor donkey does. That's one of the things we want to notice here. Okay. In the last exercise, at the end there, I introduced you, tried to introduce you to this idea that thoughts self-liberate. And this is a very important principle for our practice, that thoughts self-liberate on their own. No thought can hang around forever. You can keep it going on purpose, but no thought hangs around forever. So this means we don't have to fight thought. And we should really get over any residual idea that thought is the enemy and we have to fight thought. And when these mystics say get beyond thought, that it's something we're going to do by beating them down or something like that. We're not going to get beyond them. We're going to drop between them, so to speak. And that's going to be very natural. It's going to open up for us. At first, it's a little difficult and all that. We have to discover where the needle is, you know, to thread it. But... It's just a question of waiting for opportunities and then dropping between them. The thoughts themselves just they arise and they self-liberate. So, here's what Dilgo Kinsei, a Tibetan Rinpoche, says about this. It is completely natural that thoughts keep on arising. The point is not to try to stop them, which would be impossible anyway, but to liberate them. This is done by remaining in a state of simplicity, which lets thoughts arise and vanish again without stringing on to them any further thoughts. When you no longer perpetuate the movement of thoughts, they dissolve by themselves without any trace. When you no longer spoil the state of stillness with mental fabrications, you can maintain the natural serenity of mind without any effort. So first of all, you're saying is it's impossible. You cannot stop thought by an act of will. If you want to really convince yourself, it's worth taking a whole meditation, going off your own and see if you can just forcibly not let any thought arise for 20 minutes. And you'll convince yourself it can't be done and you'll get rid of that idea. You'll abandon it. Very important. The second thing is to recognize that when he's talking about remaining in a state of simplicity, which lets thought arise and vanish without stringing on to them any further thought. He's saying we're dropping completely this whole level of 
conscious, formal thinking, the thinking that we can perpetuate, like uh, the thought arises, gee, that's not correct. And then we're stringing on this other thought about, oh, maybe Joel's becoming a senile and stuff like that. Now, that's a thought you can catch and then you can let drop. So that's what he means by remaining in a state of simplicity and not elaborating on these thoughts that arise and pass the way you are experiencing them. So he's not saying that we should sit there and a thought arises and, and we should not make any further thought. We can't do that. A further thought will come. But we can start to let go of weaving all these thoughts into a story. And be especially aware of thoughts about the practice. Very seductive. Do not be seduced. Do not be seduced. Here's what uh, Tulko Ergen Rinpoche says. Not needing to think. I am undistracted. One arrives at undistraction. Thinking. I am undistracted. One is keeping account, establishing a reference point, fabricating the thought of non-distraction. When there is no thought, it is like not wearing any clothes. It is naked, exposed. Thinking, I am undistracted, however, is like putting clothes on again. To think I am not distracted is mere fixation, an experience within the conceptual mind. Luminosity is beyond concepts. Thinking that one is not distracted, one remains fettered. Just to carry our knowledge a little further, although it gets a little crude here. When you go to a museum, and the, you're about to go in the art gallery these days, uh, in many museums, they give you a little brochure and headset, you know, self-guided tour you take, right? And the brochure has little reproductions of the pictures that you're going to see, and then it tells you all about them. And then it's very interesting. You notice people go through the museum and they're watching their brochure. They glance at the picture and they're listening. And they go, they go to the home museum and they never see any picture. That can't happen on a spiritual path. But the point is, you have the instruction, you know, to go into that gallery, to look and to just notice that no matter what the content of these pictures are, they're all pictures. They are all the same. They all have the same taste in being just pictures. Now, that's the instruction. And then you get this commentary that runs along with it. See what I mean? And it tells you how you're supposed to be looking at all this stuff. So, yes, you're not looking at these paintings, but you're really interested in what this commentary is telling you and the little reproductions that are commenting on all your experience. And because it's not thinking about the world, it's not thinking about vacations in Hawaii, it's not thinking about your lovers and your houses and all that. This is spiritual. This is my inner teacher. You know, telling me what I should be doing and what I shouldn't be doing, what this experience is supposed to be like, and uh, or raising doubts and questions about it and all that, you see. And it's commenting, keeping track, establishing a reference point. What's it doing? It's creating a spiritual story of I as it goes along. That's all it's doing. So just watch for this. Now, we do need introspection, especially in the beginning of a practice. This is how things shift. That's why what is right in one stage of a practice is a fault in the next stage. Everything in a practice is relative to something. There's no absolutes in a practice. The whole practice itself is just relative to delusion. If there's no delusion, there'd be no practice, there'd be no path, there'd be no nothing. And everything in the practice is designed to deal with some obstacle. 
And when the obstacle is gone, we don't need to practice. So if you're getting lost in laxity and excitement still and all that, then you need to be applying a little introspection. Every once in a while checking in. Well, what is this? Wait a minute. I'm slipping into laxity. I'm slipping into excitement. We need that. We need that to remind us when we get distracted in this practice. It's fine. But at a certain point here, and this is the, what we have to find in our own practice, like tuning the guitar string, at a certain point, that commentator itself becomes the distraction, becomes the obstacle. So be really careful about this one. All right, 10-minute P meditation, and we come back and apply these teachings to practice. So, uh, very briefly, as we've been doing all along, uh, we start a little concentration, stabilize our attention, move into choiceless awareness. Even though we're now going to be focusing back in on the thought field itself, it's nice to get that sense of the space before you do that. So if you just get used to going from space to focusing, then you're passing through that space. Eventually, you're going to realize is that space is always there. So I always like to go out and then start coming back in. And go at the speed you need to go. Don't linger more than you need to. Some people at this point can go through that quite quickly. Other people really need to take their time, not just go through it mechanically. So you have to judge that for yourself. And then we focus in on the thought field. And those thoughts themselves just they arise and they self-liberate. Okay, here we go. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program. Are there any uh, questions? Yeah. The first time this week, I saw something disappear. I saw the thought disappear of my age. And it was gone for about one instant, and then the mind came and said, hey, wait a minute, what was it that went? And it went right again. But it was gone for a moment. Very good. Very good. This is interrupting the story of I for a moment, and the, you can have a little panic and reaction. It's like you suddenly, for a moment, don't know where you are, what's going on, or what happened, because the story of I isn't telling you in that little moment. Excellent observation. Really good. Yes? A lot of times it feels like there's a remnant of it left, even though... 
Yes, it reverberates. It's like an echo chamber or something. And and you know why? Because there's a reluctance to let it go until the next thought comes for the very reason that Wesley noticed. If you do let it go for a moment, you won't know nothing. There'll be no thought there. This is monkey mind in its minutest detail. It ain't going to let go of that thought until it knows, oh, it can see the next thought coming in. It'll let go of that. You see what I mean? So it takes practice. But you get to the point where it goes. You're feeling something's wrong, but th this is the point. We want to really, in detail, observe what happens here. Keep at it. My sense is, and I realize this is a thought or an image in itself, is that these thoughts just seem to be there, and then they sort of rise to the surface, mm -hmm. and then they go back down, and they're just sort of, it's sort of random how they, I mean, I'm talking about the yakety yeah, thoughts. Yeah, right, right, right. And the, But here's the point. Do you ever have a sense that they completely disappear? I I can't I haven't been able to follow. I think I'm holding on, like you were talking about, because right. I don't want to let go of and not have any thoughts. Normally, we have no sense that thoughts disappear. It's just an endless stream. But this is the point. This is why we need to practice. There's no virtue in the practice. The practice is only because we're so conditioned. Our minds just just like that. And you see, when you go look, it's not even like you're doing it, is it? No. No. They just are there. That's right. They just roll along. The mind is a mind of its own, right? Okay. So, a quick review of the importance of desire and aversion and apathy, but primarily here desire and aversion, in this whole process of creating the delusion of self and the story of I. Our attention just doesn't go to anything. It's driven and motivated by desire and aversion. That is the energy that pushes it around. Whatever is the phenomena arising, if we don't have any desire or aversion for it, then we just ignore it. We skip over it. This is why, because it plays such a key role in keeping the story of I going, keeping the delusion of self going, this is why in all traditions... It's treated as an obstacle on the path. Here's what um, Rumi says. Someone asked, what is the way? I said, this way is to abandon desires. He's a Sufi. Here's Hindu, Shankara. He says, those deluded beings who are tied to the objects they experience by the strong cord of desire, so hard to break, remain subject to birth and death. They travel upward and downward, impelled by their own karma, that inescapable wall. So the idea here is we are attached to these objects of the senses by the strong cord of desire, and that is what creates our karma. That's what keeps us going. That means that's what keeps the story of I going, the delusion going. Here's uh, Huang Po, a Buddhist. Every one of the sentient beings bound to the wheel of alternating life and death is recreated from the karma of his own desires. Endlessly their hearts remain bound to the six states of existence. 
thereby involving them in all sorts of sorrow and pain. So this is the same idea. The six states of existence are, you know, the hell realms and everything that you recycle through in these kinds of cosmologies. But it's all driven by this desire and aversion. The energy of it is all. The whole wheel of karma is driven by desire and aversion. So, let's see how this works in a little bit more detail. First of all, the big problem, the root problem is we misidentify ourselves with the body-mind and its fundamental desires and aversions. And it has these very primitive desires and aversions, which is a good thing it has, by the way. Do you know what I mean? It's a good thing we have a desire when we get thirsty for water, and when we go sniff urine, usually we're repulsed by it. So that means we'll drink water instead of drinking urine. Otherwise, we might not know the difference, and you know we can't discriminate. And so there are all sorts of fundamental biological desires and aversions that are built into the body and from biological point of view are there to protect the body and so forth. They're part of the body's wisdom. But, and there's nothing wrong with that, but we identify that as being my desire and my aversion. And then out of that, as this whole complex story of I, the full-blown human ego evolves, these desires and aversions become extremely complex and they start becoming psychological and not just, you know, you're hungry and so you eat, but the food becomes symbolic of security and rewards and so forth. Uh, the, the clothing is not just to keep you warm. Now it's your status in the community and all this stuff to enhance and protect the self. So from these root primitive desires, these complex psychological desires grow up. And this then is what drives the story of I at all these complex levels. And the important thing for us here to notice is that this happens in every moment of experience. Every moment of our experience, in the littlest ways. And if we watch carefully, which is what we're going to try to do this morning, we will see, as we're just sitting here, phenomena arise. And the mind, and this is all happening not usually at the level of a conscious thought, but the mind is judging it. Will I like that or will I not like that? Already the in, intrinsic, almost in the arising of the phenomena, there's a, a judgment, a like or a dislike associated with it. So, you know, if you've ever been around Americans who've never had sushi before and you describe it's, you know, raw fish, and they immediately go, ugh. I mean, it's like there's something wrong with the fish. The raw fish is inherently ooky. It's not. We're projecting that onto it, of course. Then you want to watch carefully because... As the phenomena arises in consciousness, and then there's this reaction, like or dislike, then, almost immediately following it, attention goes towards it. If you like it or dislike it, it'll grab your attention, and that will generate thoughts. Thoughts of how can I get that, or how can I avoid that? And if it's something we really desire or whatever, a little plan will form in the mind. And that will then precipitate an action. So we see how what is arising inside this response of desire aversion generates thoughts and then generates an action. And then we either try to avoid something and we can't avoid it, it causes us suffering. We get something 
and we or we try to get something we can't get something we like and so that causes suffering or we get it and after a while it wears out or whatever and it causes us suffering or we just get bored with it and it causes suffering and so we have to go again and again and this is what all this talk about karma boils down to people think the law of karmas and the cosmos I mean, in a certain sense it is not out there in the cosmos it arises within us that's why Huang Po says that all our karma is born of our own desires. It's constantly recreated. Every moment of experience, this is what we do. And we do this endlessly, and there's no ultimate satisfaction in that. That's the whole point of this analysis. It's not the desire and aversion are evil or bad or something. It's that this whole mechanism, driven this way, will never bring us satisfaction. We also have to understand this applies to those big desires and aversions, the strong ones that come up in our lives. Love is a very good one. You fall in love with somebody. That's a really good big one. And it applies to the most minute ones. Things we don't really recognize. You know, we have this discussion and then we'll start to meditate and somebody will say, it's a little uh, warm in here. Can, Can we get, you know... And they're not connecting their experience to the discussion. You see what I'm talking about? And it's not a criticism or fault. It's just it's under the radar, these little desires and aversions that are just always making us want to readjust the thermostat slightly, whatever the thermostat is. So we can't be complacent about this. We're not getting rid of anything here, but we want to be fine-tuned in observation of what is actually going on in our experience. So this is the first thing we want to do. The first thing we want to do is just to start to be able to identify these, particularly these little, almost subliminal desires and aversions that go along. We're not going to try to stop them. We're not going to try to repress them. We're not going to grasp them, push them away. We just want to become sensitive to them, aware of them. So we're going to do one round of meditation here, and this is what we're going to do. We're going to use choiceless awareness. So we start with focusing on our object, go through the sense fields, have attention expand completely into choiceless awareness. And now we're going to just observe how each of the little passing thoughts that goes through our mind is connected to some desire, aversion, or apathy or something. We want to actually identify it and label it so that we're clear about it, experientially, rather than just thinking and talking about it, okay? So this is what we're going to do for one round of meditation. Who needs to go have a pee meditation first? Yes, okay. Take a pee meditation, assemble back here, and we'll do this. Everybody's clear on what we are doing? Good. Here we go. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice meditation. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
somebody had their hand up then. Yes. Well, yeah. I mostly just had apathy, but my um, thoughts or and whatever came up didn't make often didn't make sense enough to even you know like an image of a triangle of faces or five people sitting on somebody's front porch or you know uh, just half a sentence. Right. So I didn't have any desire or aversion or anything. Right. So it's a very interesting uh, thing to notice. If there is no desire, no aversion, the mind s- starts to slow down. It, it doesn't create the story of I, does it? It doesn't string together dramas and sequences and, you know, right? And then all of a sudden I saw the jar of almonds sitting on the shelf in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And that was like the only desire I had. And then I thought, and it was so clear. It's just like there was the jar sitting on the shelf. And then I thought, I'd rather have cashews. <laughs> Here's the story of I. Starting up right there. Let's note this. If there's no desire and no aversion arising, there are very little thoughts arising. And the thoughts that do arise are just kind of random. They don't fit into a story. They don't make sense. They don't, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Desire and aversion drive the story. If desire and aversion are absent, the story of itself subsides. There's nothing to drive it. Was that still apathy? Yes, we, we'll call it apathy for now. I mean, as you can see, when you start to observe, there are all these complexities and you know ambiguities about this kind of energy and stuff like that. But it's valuable for us to think of it in terms of two polar extremes. So one extreme is desire, one extreme is aversion, and somewhere in the middle is just apathy. In fact, I had this, was going to save this for this afternoon, but let me tell you this story right now because I think it's uh, helpful. Uh, my Tibetan meditation teacher, he would give us meditation instruction, very simple instruction, and he would rarely talk about any philosophy or cosmology or anything like that. He was just all practice, practice, practice. And this was a house of a you know Tibetan practitioner, and they had a big tanka, hanging up someplace. So this one night, someone asked him, what does that tonka mean hanging up there? And he's kind of surprised us all by describing. He said, well, he said, this is the wheel of life. It symbolizes karma, this whole wheel. And within this, there are 12 stages of codependent arising, each represented by little figures. And then there are, I don't know, eight other things and whatnot. And there are these rings of the wheel of karma that keeps turning us around, you know, through cycle after cycle, hell realms, birth realms, and this and that. And right at the center of it, there is this rooster chasing a pig uh, that's being bitten by... No, I'm sorry. The rooster's chasing a pig, the snake is biting the rooster, and the pig is biting the snake. Right in the center of the wheel. And he said, these represent desire, aversion, and apathy. And the rooster is desire, the snake is aversion, and the pig is just apathy. And this is all kind of fascinating. This is the whole cosmos of the Tibetan worldview and everything, you know. And then he says, and you can see this in your meditation. Very easily. Just right now when we begin to meditate. He said, uh, when you're interested in the meditation, there's the rooster. Oh, you want to attain states of clarity, you want to attain whatever you want to attain. And when the meditation is going badly, there's the snake. Oh, I wish we weren't meditating. I can't get this. You know, da, da, da. 
And when you go around like this for a while, and then you finally give up and don't care anymore, there's the pig. So, what he's trying to say is that it encompasses the whole range. Sometimes our whole lives go through periods of, you know, tremendous excitement. You're about to get married, you're about to get a new house, you get a new job, you know, you're very charged up, there's a lot of desire in that. Or sometimes you go through a lot of aversion. You're breaking up, you just lost your house, you just lost your job, you know. <laughs> and then sometimes you just get depressed, you don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> so there's the pig. So it's on all these different scales, that's the point. It's on the littlest scale and then the biggest scale. Um, when we start off in a spiritual path, and even when we start off doing this particular practice, the first thing we want to do is to apply the principle of detachment. Otherwise, if we don't, then the minute we sit down to meditate, some thought's going to come and sweep us away and tie us up and so forth. So we just want to sit down, thoughts arise, desires arise, aversions arise, and we are not responding to them. We don't try to get rid of the desire or the aversion, but we check the impulse to act on it. That, that impulse that starts the whole wheel of karma going. So the itch is there, and there's the desire to scratch it, and then we can feel that you know, the hand go like that, and that's the only place you just don't let the hand do that. And then you just wait. In our normal choiceless awareness practice, up to now, what we've been doing is we've been uh, focusing on the phenomena and only secondarily maybe are aware that there's desire and aversion here. So we've shifted that a little bit so we're aware of the desire and aversion. And now we've also been watching thought and not trying to interrupt thought, not even trying to ignore thought. We want to actually now see thought and see how itself liberates. And now we want to do exactly the same thing with desire and aversion. Here's how Rinpoche Sukni describes it. There may be a disturbing emotion, but it can be dissolved without creating any karma. Not rejecting disturbing emotions but simply allowing them to be self-liberated. It is possible to allow these emotions to arise and yet not to create karma. So the idea is the emotion, the desire arises, and then if we leave it alone, the desire will self-liberate, just like the thought. So there are a number of ways this happens, and you just have to see in your own experience. One is that the desire and the thought are so uh, joined together, that when you dissolve the thought, the desire dissolves immediately. Sometimes, if the desire is generating a lot of thoughts, when you allow one thought to dissolve, the desire still hangs around. So if you've been caught up, let's say, in a little complex drama, and then you go and you look at the last thought in that little story, and you allow that to dissolve... The energy, the feeling, the naked feeling will still be there. It won't just dissolve with the thought. If that happens, then you put your attention on just that bare feeling, that feeling of energy, without trying to label it, this is good, this is bad, this is something else. Just the naked feeling. If the thought continues to want to comment on that, you just let that dissolve and go back and stay with that energy of that bare feeling until that self-liberates. Sometimes they don't go away, and then we get frustrated, but this is the point. It's not about trying to make it go away. 
If you try to make it go away, you are back into desire. You are back into aversion. You are back into karma. So you have to be very careful about that. So you're just watching it. Just watching it. It will self-liberate. See, this is the point. The truth about the world is everything is impermanent. Everything. None of this stuff is permanent. It's all empty. It all is constantly arising and self-liberating. Nothing staying still. That's the truth of life. So what we're just trying to do is see the truth of life, not manipulate life. We spent all our lives trying to manipulate it. Now we're just trying to see it. It's so difficult to do that because what we have to learn to do is stop trying to manipulate. Just watch what actually is the truth. That's all we're really trying to do. It comes down to something that's something. All right. So we begin with stabilizing our attention on our meditation object. We expand our attention through the various sense fields all the way out into the total field of consciousness awareness. Get a sense of that infinite boundless space. Relaxing into it. And then we focus the attention in the mental field, the thought field, watch some thoughts, and we just look at what the last one was and allow it to self-liberate. If there is a charge of desire under that and that's still there, just watch that. That will liberate. We're not labeling anymore. No labeling. But we're just noticing. Everything just self-liberates. We're just simply watching how this stuff arises, self-liberates. And if we do get carried away into trains of thought, we do the same thing. We just treat it all just like any other thought. So we allow it to self-liberate. We're letting everything just self-liberate. Okay? You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing meditation at least once a day until you are thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more meditation teachings and instructions.